So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. And today we're talking to Peter Rose, who's CTO of Tech Enable. Peter, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Patrick. Yourself? Great. I've very much been looking forward to this discussion. We're going to talk about the story of Tech Enable and the rise of low code. But really to get started, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and maybe you can tell us about what made you pursue a career in technology. Oh, wow. Okay. Career in technology. I suppose I built my first computer, in quotes, when I was about five or six years old. And my parents owned a shop. I was sitting on the living room floor above this shop. And I got an old box from somewhere and a price gun that I borrowed from the store, some wires and a bit of paper. And I basically stuck them all in this shoebox and called it my computer and insisted on demoing it to people. <laughs> so between that and watching Star Trek on the TV, I think it was kind of inevitable to end up doing something in the technology and computer space. Fantastic. And did you do computer science at university? I actually... When I went to secondary school, the, uh, the, the, the teacher that was supposed to take us through O-level and then A-level computer science left about three months into the O-level course. And there's a group of about five of us basically self-taught ourselves through the rest of that O-level and then into the A-level. I wanted to study physics, actually. I applied for a physics course, but I wasn't clever enough to do physics. And they would let me into the course, so I scrambled around. And in those days, there was no internet. So a friend of mine said, have you tried Teesside Polytechnic? said, they've got a great computer science course up there. You might like it. So I rang them on the phone and they said, yep, got a place coming up. So I spent four years on that, doing an honors degree in computer science and, uh, and I loved it. So the company I went out to do work experience with spent a year on work experience. I stayed that year. Then I stayed the next year. So I did my fourth year, which was supposed to be studying, but actually worked for them for most of that while studying. Um, and then I spent the next 10 years with them. So I left and uh, I moved over to Ireland. Uh, so what was your first job like? What were you doing? Were you writing code? Were you testing software? I started off as a tester. It's kind of an easy place to begin because all you need is a mentality of tearing things apart, asking the, the what if and doing the things that people don't expect you to do with their software. And I had that. And then I got my big break, as it were, on the software development side of things when a person went on holiday without having completed the work they were supposed to do on a critical project that was ongoing. And the project was in a bit of a meltdown. They didn't have anybody to compensate for him left. And I put my hand up and said, I can do it. And they sort of looked at each other and he could see the wheels turning. It's like, oh God, do we trust him? He's just a tester type of thing. But they had no choice. And I delivered it. And I never went back to testing. They took me into the software development division and I carried on working on projects. Some very big and very important projects from time to time as well. So with that first project, when you put your hand up, were you fully confident you could do it? I was actually, yes. Yeah. Because I'd always loved software development. I've always been doing it. It's just that the role I'd been employed as was tester. And in that company, it was kind of difficult to break the mold a little bit. If you had a title, you kind of state your expectation once you become a test team lead and then, you know, maybe move on to somewhere else. But you could lead a bigger test team or something like that. And it wasn't that easy to transition across from one team to another. But they took the risk on me and I was able to prove myself. And what brought you to Ireland? Well, that's easy. I married an Irish girl. <laughs> it's, to be honest, it, it wasn't quite that simple. I was spending a lot of my time traveling abroad, being sent abroad on projects, or even not necessarily abroad. I spent a lot of time in places like Aberdeen, for example, which, while it's a lovely place, was a long way from home. And I was living in hotels and stuff like that. And when my first child came, my wife sort of couldn't continue the job she was doing because of me being away and have any support. So we decided that maybe I could get a job that wasn't sending me here, there and everywhere. And I'd spend more time at home and, and see the children grow up and she get more support. And to be fair, it worked out well. That's good to hear. And 
tell us about Tech Enable. So what do you guys do? Maybe something about some of the technology challenges that you solve. So what we do is we, we run digital transformation programs for typically large enterprise business, but not exclusively so. And we use low-code platforms as the means of implementing the change rapidly within that organization. So by low-code platforms, I mean that we use the likes of Microsoft Dynamics platform, Salesforce, those sorts of things. And it's the kind of technology where instead of writing thousands or millions of lines of code, which is a hard, highly skilled process to go through, what we do is we use a lot of visual design tools to drag and drop business processes to design screens and reports visually as opposed to writing lines of code it means we can do it much more quickly much lower risk and with less effort on the part of the customer as well because they don't have to test as much as they would otherwise so the tools are really quite liberating in terms of digital transformation you can set high ambitions in terms of how you want to change your business process um, what kind of outcomes you want to achieve and know that the tools are there to support you doing that more efficiently that's what we do digital transformation through low code and uh in what way would you say low code is changing the software sector? It's interesting, actually. What we've seen is that you don't necessarily need as much software engineering. It's low code, not no code. So I need to be clear about that. You still typically need to write some software, uh, but the vast majority of what you do in a low code system is, as I said, visual design. Because it's now visual design tools, it's much more accessible. So probably instead of needing a highly qualified, deeply skilled software developer, you can now have somebody who perhaps traditionally wouldn't have now to engage, which would be the likes of the business analysts, for example, or even the customer subject matter experts with a suitable bit of training can start to really get involved in actually building the systems themselves. So the BAs, for example, where so they would have drawn a flowchart perhaps and presented it in a document showing a new process. They can now build the actual business process using a tool that describes it in a flowchart form, right? The difference is the old way of doing it was just a piece of paper people could read new way of doing it shows them exactly the same thing, but it runs. It's democratized the technology a little bit. It's made it more accessible. The ability to deliver functional systems has widened out from just the honors degree software engineer with 10 years expertise to the subject matter expert that really understands their business, but doesn't really have a lot of technical expertise or the business analyst who's used to breaking problems down into usable chunks and, and figuring what tools can be used to uh, best effect for. Peter, I saw that DeepMind has an AI tool that's writing novel computer code, and they actually deployed it into, into a competition with their real programmers, and it yeah. appears to have achieved kind of a mid-level <laughs> level of software. It's kind of like a, a mediocre programmer, which is an incredible accomplishment from Google. Should programmers be worried about the future of their job? Is there going to be like mass unemployment in software within five or 10 years because of AI? Or like, how is this going to impact on the people who work in the sector? But if you look at tools like GitHub, for example, I think it's GitHub. GitHub has a tool. What it essentially does is it watches the software engineer as they start to type a piece of code. And it's effectively Googling in the background for code that looks like what's being typed and then suggesting it in real time to the programmer. So if you write a function titled, you know, calculate square root or something, it'll go and find you 
10 different square root functions and you can just sort of go what's that one right <laughs> and it's sort of automating what software engineers have done since the beginning of the internet which is gleefully plagiarize the work that other people have done and publish online to save them having to write it themselves from scratch and that ai engine is really doing a similar sort of thing I and mean, it's not searching google it's searching a machine learning algorithm that's learned lots of code and how it looks and what the most common thing is to do next and whatever is it going to put people out of business I don't think so. There's, there's always likely to be a need for software developers and the human element in this. You can't imagine perhaps having AI writing code that is operating the braking system in your car, for example. You're unlikely in the code that's generated by an AI system to be able to validate that it's correct. You're going to look at it. You can test it, but you can't know because it hasn't been put together following a, a set of traceability principles and established design patterns. You can't have a high confidence that it's going to work beyond what you can test in all circumstances. Whereas if software developers sat down, tried to work out permutations and encoded it following approved patterns and using their skill and judgment, I think you've got a higher chance that it's going to work. There'll be all sorts of problems requiring people nuclear power, railway signaling, air traffic control, all stuff that I've worked on in the past that I wouldn't like to auto-generate. Yeah, and also I think humans are, are pretty bad at estimating what the impacts of technological changes are going to be. Um, I remember in the 1980s, I remember there was like an article in our geography book on automation and how it might lead to unemployment in the future. This is in the 1980s. Um, yeah. We are in 2022, and the biggest challenge many economies have is like a lack of people to fill jobs. Oh, 100%. Also look at something like, you know, back in 2016, there was estimated that by 2020, driverless cars were going to be everywhere on the road. You know, we're certainly nowhere near that yet. So we're not very good at really estimating what the impacts of technology are going to be. And we also seem to be pretty good at creating new ways for people to work and to spend their time. So, so waiting for my flying car. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was promised to me on tomorrow's world television program back in the early 1970s, I think. No, there are flying cars, but it's certainly not buzzing around above my house at the moment. <laughs> uh, Peter, I'd love to ask you about some of the the challenges you had in your own career, because I know as well as being a technology professional, you've been running companies. Have there been any particularly hairy moments and maybe what would be some of the things you'd have learned from those uh, circumstances? Yeah, I suppose possibly the biggest hairy moment was actually what caused us to set up Tech Enable in the first place, which is I worked for a company that was internet boom and bust business. I was their CTO and it grew rapidly to I think about 240 staff within two years. Well, unfortunately, that company didn't have a revenue stream that would support it. It was reliant on, on investment and that investment was being generated by the internet bubble. Um, you know, this, this hugely inflated expectation of, of these sorts of businesses. So the company inevitably went bankrupt. Unfortunately, it took longer than others. And I say unfortunately, because all the other internet boom and bust businesses had gone bust way before it and all their developers and BAs and testers and CTOs and everything else had gone off and got other jobs in more traditional industries. So when the company that I worked for went bust, we were sort of stuck. And I say we, because Nick Connors, my, my business partner, was actually the, the managing director of the Irish operation. And I'd known him before that. So we both sort of looked at each other just before the company went bankrupt and said, well, what the hell are we going to do? There are no real jobs out there. We're going to have to start our own business, aren't we? And we'd made a commitment ourselves personally in selling projects to customers in this boom and bust business that... We felt a moral obligation to fulfill on what we promised them. So we approached them as the company went bankrupt. 
we approached these customers and said, essentially, your project is gone. The money you've spent on it so far is lost unless you're willing to move forward with us, in which case what we'll do is we'll finish your project. We'll finish it in the originally agreed timescale to the originally agreed scope for whatever remaining money is in the budget. And we're very lucky in that quite a few actually agreed to that and came on board. And we formed a company in a hurry, borrowed office space off a friend of ours for free because we had no money. We hadn't been paid in six months. When I say we had no money, I really mean we had no money. And we completed those projects. Companies were very good. They technically gave us a payment at the end of the first month so that we put food on the table and carry on working. We delivered the projects for the budgets. And in the meantime, we were putting together a presentation saying what Tech and Enable did and registering with the tax authorities. So that was one of the hairy moments, I suppose, is the edge of bankruptcy, no jobs in the markets. Oh, God, what are we going to do? Can we get this thing off the ground? What the hell do we know about running a company? Um, we, we learned it on the way. Can I ask you what you learned about yourself through that experience? Oh, God. Um, probably a bit more mentally resilient than I thought. <laughs> it's, you, you would not believe how stressful that process was. And it wasn't creation of the new company. That was, that was something positive. That was an action you could take to move forward and, and do something that potentially leads you out of the, the problems. It was sitting in the office of the dying business, watching people being dismissed here, there, and everywhere as they couldn't afford to, to pay for them for months, but not being able to leave because contractually we were locked in and there was an examinership process that it was going through and all sorts of rubbish going on. The stress of not being paid while not being able to get out of it was unbelievable. And then moving and, and being able to s- switch the mind from, oh, woe is me, oh God, what am I going to do, to, well, let's do this then. You know, we'll put our all in it so we make it a success and realizing that we could and it would be a success potentially. So, yeah, it was mental toughness, mental resilience. And what it taught us as well in the business sense is the value of things. You know, I, I had an office on Wall Street, a desk with a pot plant and if I looked over my left shoulder, there was the, uh, the entrance to the New York Stock Exchange. It um, wasn't worth a damn at the end of the day. It really didn't count for anything because the business was set up to be completely reliant on investment, and that was a, an unsustainable chain of dependencies. So it, it taught us what was real and what was valuable in business and what was just fluff and, and optics. It's amazing you mentioned that, because in the first three months of COVID, we lost about 30% of our customers, and we had no idea like, how bad this was going to get. So we were like, my business partners and I, we sat down in different rooms on a Zoom call. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, there was this very, very intense situation of like, okay, the customers seem to be fleeing the doors. Our operating costs are staying the same, but our income is significantly lower than it was. We have no idea when that is going to recover or how much worse it's going to get. So we went on a, on a drastic cost cutting. We thought about like, what are the things we want to keep and what are the things we can actually get rid of? So you got to see pretty quickly what was, what was critical to your business. And uh, the first principle we decided was no one's going to get fired, whether they're the cleaner or the CTO, everything in between. Our mission is going to be to protect everyone's job. And that kind of gave us all a sense of purpose. And then we looked, okay, where are we spending money where we don't really need to be spending money? And as you say, office space. We used to have a dedicated desk for every engineer in the company, and people weren't even using them much anyway. And 
we're able to look at like, you know, what's important expenditure, what's actually making the company better and what's nice to have given we don't know how bad things are going to be. So like yourselves, we really very quickly realized like, what do you need to keep your company going? And it's really when you're a consulting business, it's your people. Oh, yes. If the message goes out to your people that, look, even in the darkest moments where we don't know how bad things are going to get, we're going to do everything we can to protect everyone's job. And we had fantastic resilience shown by people across the organization. Our people rewarded us with retention and loyalty. So even though we're in a super competitive environment, people stayed with us. And it was kind of the making of our culture too, because I guess it's really in those difficult moments, as you say, you learn about who you are, you learn about people that are around you, you learn about your culture as an organization and really the... uh, the resilience part, I think, is one of the benefits you obtain from those difficult moments is you realize, well, look, if we can deal with that really tough situation, then maybe we can deal with a lot of other stuff. I, I'm curious, Peter, you had to get a bunch of clients to transition with you over to this new business. Why do you think they went with you? Because that's a risky proposition. You had no legal entity, you had no track record. They obviously trusted you, but why? <laughs> I can't say for certain, but I, I think it's because of integrity. I think I think they recognized that we weren't just spinning them a story to try and get some money out of them. I think they recognized that a good part of that was about the integrity of having promised them ourselves that we would deliver in the context of the previous company and that we were continuing that because it was you know genuinely heartfelt that we had made that commitment ourselves personally and we wanted to make sure that that happened. And that's actually followed through. It's been one of the key tenants of, of Tech Enable actually is we do a lot of work under, say, fixed price contracts, for example. Um, the nature of software doesn't always go exactly the way you want it to, and you're not always going to make money on a contract. We've had some contracts where we've taken a complete bath on it, but we've always delivered. We'd never walked off the pitch and said, we're not going to do this. We're giving up. We're walking away. Never, ever done that because we've made a commitment to that customer. And that, you know, that mentality brought Tech Enable into being in the first place and has infused through it. It's difficult. We're 140 something staff now spread over six countries. And it, it's difficult to keep people aligned with your thinking. But, you know, do what I do, don't do what I say type of thing, hopefully follows through. But that was the mentality. It's integrity. So besides integrity, when, when you've been hiring for Tech Enable, what are the qualities you look for in people? And particularly when you were, let's say, a little bit early on with the business? Mm-hmm. Early on in the business is slightly different to later on in the business. So early on in the business is a, is a willingness to roll up the sleeves and get dug into pretty much anything that needs to be done, right? You are the octopus and everybody in the organization has to be the, the octopus with eight arms and doing different things with each of them all the time. So you can't just be a project manager, for example. You have to be a project manager and a tester and possibly support people on sales calls a bit and whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The website needs some content, write some content for the website. As you get a bit bigger, as you're well aware, Padre, the roles tend to specialize more. So you do have people who are project managers and you do have people that are BAs. But the key characteristic we look for in them is enthusiasm and ability. We don't necessarily need deep experience or specific familiarity with how we do things. We can train that, provided you've got the right attitude. We can train it. And you know what? The thing about IT is IT changes fundamentally every four or five years anyway. So If you're hiring for somebody who has specific skills in some specific product and only hiring them because of that, come four years' time, they may not be the person to work for you. But if you're hiring for ability and attitude, they'll always be the right person to work for you. 
Have you ever taken like a complete gamble and hired someone that had like no track record, no background for the role that you hired them for? Oh yeah, yeah, and and, and I'm not going to say what role or who because it wouldn't be fair on the individuals. But we've continued to to take a punt based upon we think this person has potential. All right, actually, I will give you the example because he's fabulously successful. He was made redundant from his previous role, which was in IT, and wanted to to see if there was going to be any good at sales. So we took him on. Because this person isn't a dyed in the wool, trained in every training course, you can imagine how to sell to people, but is somebody that actually knows the reality of being on the buying side, he's really good at selling. <laughs> because he doesn't come across as a salesperson. He helps people to buy. He doesn't sell to them. We've somebody else who's now currently leading one of our teams who came in with absolutely no experience whatsoever, a couple of training courses under their belt, and is now running the whole practice around this for us. He's, he's a senior lead. He runs the practice. I love seeing that kind of stuff happen. And we've had a few experiences like that in Zartis. Like one in particular that comes to mind is our head of growth, Albena, uh, joined us as an intern. So she had an internship requirement as part of her, her master's. Uh, and I think probably three years had gone off to Germany to set up her Berlin office and is now our, our head of growth. Just to see people evolve their career at the enthusiasm, hard work, willingness to learn, all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of energy that powers forward a whole company. It's exactly. It's exactly. I worked for a company a good few years ago, which used to have a practice that they would bring you into a room and metaphorically speaking, beat you up for all the things that you were bad at on a regular basis. This ascribed to some pseudo-religious approach to people management. And, and it was very negative, toxic almost that you, you're no good at, I don't know, rally driving, for example. And, you know, you need to get better at this. And there's absolutely no recognition of what you're good at. They just hammered you for what you were bad at all the time. And the idea was it would drive you to improve. What it did was I actually left the company because I couldn't deal with it. So what we do is we hire people, we, we figure out what they're good at, and then we let them off to do it. And we encourage them to do more of it. Because why do you force somebody to try and be good at something they're bad at? That's stupid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so powerful as well when people join an organization and they talk to some of their colleagues and realize that maybe a colleague has really progressed through the ranks of an organization. Maybe they came in at a, a much more junior level, another maybe in a leadership role, maybe they're a partner in the business. Folks to kind of see that and then recognize that that's part of the culture of an organization, I think, is really powerful. Peter, I'd love to ask you a little bit about how you learn. Like, do you read a lot? Uh, are there podcasts that you could recommend? Because you're running a business with your business partners and we all need kind of intellectual fuel. We all need ideas from elsewhere. Where do you get your ideas from? I don't have a lot of time for learning <laughs> as a, as a set-aside activity. I love TED. I love uh, not so much the TEDx stuff, the local ones, but the TED uh, podcasts and TED videos, et cetera. I love those. I find if you can sit and spend half an hour to an hour, listen to four of them, it's not usually enough to listen to one of them to get you into the mood. But if you listen to four in a row that you enjoy, personally, I come out of it, you know, motivated and energized and, and, and better informed about something. It could be beekeeping, it could be whatever, it doesn't matter. But, you know, you learn something. Um, on a technical front, it's very difficult because there is so much to learn. And I'm almost at the point where I'm having to, to think about higher level concepts and not worry about the lower level stuff. And 
trust that the teams that I've got underneath me, the architects, the, the leaders, the specialists, the consultants, etc., trust them to know their areas and, and do their bit and just lift yourself up, take higher view, higher view, higher view all the time. So I'm spending more time talking to our customers about their business strategy and their objectives and the challenges they have than I am about any architecture they might want in an Azure platform. That's an artifact of the fact they've got a business strategy that needs to achieve something. Go back five, 10 years ago, I'd have been worrying about the Azure platform. 10 years before that, I'd be worrying about the code that was written on that platform, right? So I think learning is, is partly a process of lifting yourself up and thinking at higher levels all the time, trusting other people, listening to what they say, and learning stuff that's got absolutely nothing to do with your job. So I, I love reading books on stuff that I've got no business need to know. I just finished a book on heart surgery, for example. And it's not written for people like me. It's, it's written for people in that business. It's a, a compendium of white papers from a, uh, a particular conference that happened in the US a few years ago of new techniques. And it's not an easy read, but I found it interesting read. And maybe that's just me. I'm just weird, but I like reading stuff that's got nothing to do. And you know what happened? We got a project opportunity with a cancer surgeon. Um, I feel I've got a slightly better insight into his world than I did before. I was just going to say that I have found that, like yourself, I have a tendency to go down some weird rabbit holes when it comes to yeah. articles. Like I'm kind of a generalist. I find everything interesting, science, history, politics, sports. And uh, it's, it's amazing when stuff becomes useful. Like I spend a lot of time learning about financial crisis and the CDOs and the various financial instruments that kind of caused all that to happen. Yeah. Uh, I found myself in a sales meeting a couple of years ago with an individual that was, they weren't building CDOs or anything like that, but they, it was something in the derivative space and just having some background reference points yes. gave him just a, a hell of a lot more trust in, in me and we, we understood each other and you could see I was interested to learn about the challenges they were trying to solve. So you'd be surprised when, when all this weird stuff becomes quite useful. I, I am constantly surprised by how useful it becomes. You get people looking at you, how do you know that? <laughs> how do you know about my business? And firstly, I'm inherently nosy. It's one of the things I really love about bespoke software as a, as a business. They get to look inside organizations and look at problems and challenges and opportunities that other people just don't get to even have any sense of and go to places and hear things that other people have no idea of. I, when I walk down a high street, I see more than buildings and shops. I see the businesses behind them, you know, supply chains behind those cyber attacks that are taking place on them the challenges of logistics and distribution and so on and so forth, and, um, as opposed to, ooh, that's a nice window, you know? And it's getting that insight. That's what gives me my kick, actually. That's what I really enjoy. Peter, um, so a lot of our listeners are either entrepreneurs or soon to be entrepreneurs. What advice would you give to someone thinking to set up their own company? Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm tempted to say don't do it, but <laughs> that would be. Um, don't listen to a lot of the advice that you get would be my advice. If you believe that you've got an idea that is going to achieve an objective for you, your objective might be to earn a lot of money. It could be to have a lifestyle business that frees you from the nine to five, the commute, whatever else. doesn't matter what the objective is. If you truly think you've got an idea that's going to do that, then there is absolutely no reason in the world why you shouldn't go for it. And hundreds of people are going to tell you all the reasons they think why you shouldn't go for it, but none of them are inside your head and know what you can do know what your motivations are, or have thought it through in the way that you thought it through. You don't have to justify it to them. What you do have to do is try and find a mentor who will listen 
not criticise the dream, but help you find practical ways of actually achieving it. And we've been, I've been very lucky over the years of a lot of people that I know who have done exactly that, listened, and they've helped to solve problems and knock down barriers and introduce me to people or whatever it may be that was needed at that point in time. And I'm very grateful to them because I've never done anything without them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think if I was to add anything to that, some great advice I got early on in my career was to tell people the truth. And it sounds so basic, yeah. but it's, <laughs> you wouldn't believe any success that I've enjoyed in my career has basically come from the fact of telling people the truth because most of my roles have involved business development, sales. And if someone gets the sense that you're being honest with them, God, everything is just so much easier. They relax. They tell you what their problem is. You tell them whether or not you can solve it. If you can't solve it, you tell them maybe who they could talk to who might be able to solve it. Everything's so much easier when you're honest. And it's not something internal to me. It's something I was taught uh, early in my career. I had a mentor who taught me how to sell and basically go into a room. He'd listen and he'd tell people the truth. It was as simple as that. And I remember early on, yes. we were in a meeting together. And there was a deal to be had, but it wasn't quite what our company could do or did do. He said, like, no, we're, we're not the right people for this. And I was shocked. There's a deal here. Should we not be using our job to close the deal? But he recognized we weren't going to deliver properly on that deal. So he recommended that they talk to another consulting firm who would do that in a much better way. And a few months down the line, they then introduced us to another company with a deal that we were able to deliver on. So like he was smart enough to realize, like, be honest, tell people the truth, and then people will be delighted to work with you. So it's a very basic thing. It sounds, and it sounds maybe naive in some ways, but I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Very powerful advice. Yes, 100% agree. The founder of Zartis said this to me, that very few people have a good enough memory to be a good liar. Like if you tell people the truth, you don't have to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good advice. Yes. People know when they're being, you know, when they're being snowed. They know it. They can feel it. They can sense it. Yeah. Human beings have been around for a long time and have, you know, been dependent on reading people. So they know exactly when the salesperson is bullshitting them to try and get them to sign up to something. They might know precisely what you're bullshitting them about. They know that the overall effect is, that, yeah, you're a bullshitter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lack of trust. Yeah, trust goes out the window. And once trust has gone out the window, forget it. You're not going anywhere with that. Couldn't agree more. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure, Porter. Thank you. Yeah, we really enjoyed speaking with you. So, production, as always, from Adnan Tutar with support from Evan Sheehan and Albina Krasteva and music by Robert Cooney. Catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.